We can find a way. Idil Elberich presents. program of We Can Find A Way, my guests will be a known mediator from Scotland, John Sturrock. Hello and welcome back to another program of We Can Find A Way, a podcast about conflict resolution. My name is Idil Elberish. Today, my guest is John Sturrock, who is universally regarded as Scotland's finest mediator and one of the best of the UK mediators. John became a Queen's Counsel in 1999 and designed and led the Scottish Bar's award-winning advocacy skills program. He also published in April 2020 a book called A Mediator's Musings and has recently released a series of podcasts. John is an internationally recognized commercial mediator, but also a thought leader in the area of mediation. In fact, this is how I got to know him through reading his writings in Mediate.com, one of which was about Brexit. Trained in negotiation at Harvard, he's an internationally recognized coach, facilitator and strategic advisor in the fields of negotiation, mediation and communication, and has worked with business leaders and executives, senior civil servants, top athletes and parliamentarians, and has been described as one of the best teachers of mediation. In this program, we discuss the NHS report that he was commissioned to write by the Scottish government, his stance and engagement about political issues such as this report, involvement in the meetings of the Scottish Citizens' Assembly, and the Green Pledge for Mediators. All these show a different profile than merely a known commercial mediator. He spreads the mediation culture through addressing social problems with the methods of mediation. Let's now move to the interview that took place on 22nd October 2020. Let's start with the Scottish NHS report. It is not very common for commercial mediators to get engaged in such policy or political issue like this, if you will. How did this come about? Please tell us. Well, I suppose that uh, being a commercial mediator ideal is only one of my roles. So here in Scotland, where I am sitting just now, I have a number of different roles that I play. Being a commercial mediator is a fundamental part of my professional life. I suppose I offer other services and, and other skills. So it was in that context that I was approached two years ago by the Scottish Government to ask if I would consider carrying out some sort of an investigation uh, into what had been allegedly happening in one of our NHS areas, that's NHS Highland in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And initially what they were interested to do, have me play the more conventional role of finding perhaps who had made mistakes, who was to blame and to help people perhaps to think about compensation and restitution. But in my conversations with them, I said that that was not the kind of work that I do, that as a mediator, as a facilitator, first of all, listening to people, hearing their stories, helping them to feel valued, but also trying to understand what their experiences have been. And then secondly, underneath that, what had actually caused the situations to occur, which allegedly were bullying and harassment in various parts of the institution. So that was what we agreed I would do is a three parts, really. I would listen uh, to what people had to say. I would try to establish, if I could, discern what lay under the surface, what the underlying causes were, diagnostically, if you like, and then come up with some recommendations. In fact, I didn't call them recommendations. Ultimately, I think they were proposals and suggestions because I was very keen that the local people were able to take forward what I 
felt that I had discovered, but worked with it and, and came to their own final solutions and outcomes. And very much applying the thinking, the process and the skill of mediation or of being a mediator, but in that wider context. And it was a real privilege, actually, to do that. That's why I was asked. The other thing is that these inquiries, when they're held, often take a long, long time, become very forensic are very expensive. We've got a number of these running in Scotland just now. Whereas this particular project, which I called a review, only took, I think it was three months. Although it grew, I still completed it more or less in the time frame originally conceived. Initially, we had thought or I was told there would be maybe 50 or 60 people who were affected. It turned out to be hundreds. Over 300 people came forward. But I still managed to somehow condense all of that. It took a little bit longer than another few weeks to produce and finalise the report. It was possible to carry out that piece of work and get the final report prepared and the government then published it. That was encouraging. As I say, it was a real privilege to be a part of that. Do you think it's going to be more and more common in public services from now on? It should be. It could be. Whether it will be is another matter altogether because people are so set in the habit of carrying out often judicially-led investigations, which are about finding out what went wrong and who to blame and looking for scapegoats. So it's a very backward-looking context. And, of course, that's the mindset of so much of our contemporary politics and decision-making The trouble with that is it doesn't necessarily get under the surface to find out what really worked and what didn't work uh, and how things can be done better next time around. In fact, in that setting, people often become fearful of being found to blame and therefore will tend to be defensive. And I suspect that's not conducive to the most helpful and constructive approach where really looking to, to establish what can be done differently next time, what the learning can be. There's a very good book written by Matthew Syed, who's a correspondent who writes regularly for the Times newspaper in the UK, and it's called Black Box Thinking, and it illustrates the difference between the airline industry and the health sector. And he says that in the 1970s, because there were a number of air crashes, the airline industry decided to have effectively a no-fault approach to investigation. What they wanted to do was to find out what had happened, why it happened, and how to avoid it in the future. And, And that created a completely different approach culture to problem solving in the airline industry and he contrasts that with the health sector where he says that the equivalent of a jumbo jet crashes every day or every week Uh, but of course we don't really know about it and don't experience it in that way and that may or may not be correct but I think that the the sense there is that very often in, in large institutions we don't have the ability to be thoughtful about why things go wrong because things will always go wrong people are human and people make mistakes not because they're bad people but because they're under pressure or the systems are not effective or whatever it might be whether or not this will become commonplace I'm not sure I wish it could be I know that some work has been done into more progressive approaches to these sorts of inquiries, but it still tends to be theoretical. And we need a kind of culture shift in the mindset of those who set up and commission these sorts of inquiries. We like holding people accountable. If somebody is going to be held accountable, then everybody is trying to, you know, get rid of the blame as well. well. well, Accountability and responsibility are fine because people do have to take ownership for things that occur. For that to result in blame and fault and sanction and punishment uh, can be severely detrimental to the person and also to the institution. I mean, we know that as mediators. I mean, however people may wish to blame others, ultimately that can end up in a zero-sum game with, at the very best, suboptimal outcomes, but often outcomes which are much worse than that. If we want to optimise outcomes, we have to build rather than knock down. 
What about the findings when you think about COVID now, the response and the complaints of the employees of the NHS? Do you see that your report or the findings of your report are relevant to what they are going through now? It's very difficult to draw any parallels. I mean, I'm not aware intimately of, of the experience of NHS professionals at this stage. Mm-hmm. And of course, my report was about a particular right. part of Scotland uh, in particular circumstances, and some of it was quite specific to that organisation. So I think I wouldn't want to necessarily make a direct connection. However, underneath it all were feelings of pressure, fear, expectations that could hardly ever be met, and therefore the human response to that. And so in the health industry, as in so many sectors of society, perhaps all of them, people are under pressure, you know, and that pressure if not well understood, can create all sorts of psychological and physiological impacts. And particularly now with COVID, I mean, you see, goodness knows. And in fact, we do know that the health sector is under enormous pressure individually and collectively. We need to be very sensitive to that, very aware of that, and very understanding of that. And one of the things that occurred to me is we need to almost have a national conversation. Maybe it's a multinational conversation about our expectations of healthcare. There's so much possibility scientifically but our resources are limited, time is limited, and people's ability to respond is going to be limited. And that must be exacerbated now so many times over by the pandemic and the need to have these restrictions and, and to focus healthcare in a particular way. So I think all of these features, all of these factors are likely to be very much alive today. And we need to be thoughtful about that, very sensitive to that, and creative in our response to sensitivity towards those who are working in the health sector. And indeed other sectors, the care sector, of course. Any provision of... Any public service is under... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about public service, but, you know, the private sector very often is also providing service. And we tend to denigrate it because it's profit-making. But without the making of wealth, we can't sustain the public service. So I think there's a need for nuance, understanding of complexity, just a, a greater... Again, understanding and awareness of the complexity of modern society and the interrelationship of the public and private sectors, if you like. The necessary codependence. And let's not forget the not-for-profit voluntary sector as well, which contributes so much to modern society and provision of services in modern society. Now that we're at it, I want to ask you about your engagement in political issues because not many mediators, especially commercial mediators, do not do that. And they justify this on ethical grounds of neutrality, objectivity, etc. You are taking a different approach and you get engaged whether the issue is Brexit or the NHS. I also know that you got involved with the Citizens Assembly. So please tell us more. Yeah. Tackle, first of all, the word neutrality, ideal, because I'm not sure that any of us can truly say that we're neutral, particularly when we think about implicit biases. We all have our background, we have our heritage, we have our beliefs, we have our values. So I think one has to be very careful. I think what one tries to be is impartial. It, obviously, commercial mediation situations par excellence, I would always seek to be impartial and feel that I, I can achieve that. But one has got to be humble about one's own personality, prejudices and biases and so forth. So far as the political world is concerned, I mean, political and policy-making world, I believe that I can and that some mediators can and indeed should bring the values and the attitudes and the skills of mediation into that world. So when I get involved in politics, I don't get involved in politics with a big P partisan approach at all. In fact, very much the opposite. My activity is non-partisan. It's designed to 
help people to have the conversations that very often they can't have. I work with people from all political parties and all political persuasions. Of course, I have my views, but these views don't intrude into any of that work that I do. I have values and a commitment to a way of doing things. I think there is something about mediators and politics, which is that mediation's values are intrinsic to a certain way of being, a certain way of doing. We talk about listening, we talk about understanding, we talk about respect, we talk about dialogue. We're not neutral when it comes to that sort of, or these ideas, these Mm -hmm. concepts and these values. It is incumbent upon us to speak up for, to represent and to promote these values. So in my part of the world, I seek to promote the values of respectful dialogue. I seek to promote the idea that politicians could and should work together. I seek to promote the idea that we have much more in common than separates us. I seek to find ways to build bridges between different political movements when the absence of bridges creates impasse or potential destruction. So I am comfortable in doing that. I'm also comfortable, and this is where I perhaps do go further than some of my colleagues, in commenting on the approach taken in, for example, the Brexit negotiations. Right. So just a few weeks ago, I had an article published in the Times newspaper in which I said that whatever one thought of the political decision to withdraw from an international agreement, which is what the UK government allegedly is doing, it seemed to me to be a poor negotiating strategy. And I explained why I thought that creating apprehension and inflammation with your negotiating counterparts doesn't fit with my understanding of effective negotiation. Called on Nelson Mandela, called on getting to yes. If you have all the power and all the cars and you can just say that this is what's happening, that's fine. But that's not the situation here, even though others might think it should be different. So that was implicitly and possibly explicitly critical of the UK government's negotiating stance. And I have no difficulty in that. And I accept that may mean that there will be some pieces of work, some services which I might have provided, which people would prefer not to invite me to do. I take that risk. Some of my colleagues would say, no, uh, we shouldn't be involved in that at all. We should be available in in all circumstances and we should not disclose publicly our views about things. That's fine. I think there are horses for courses. For me, mediation is a means to an end and that end is enhancing the way that we do things in the civic square, as it were, in the public sphere. For others of my colleagues, and this is equally valid, mediation is the end in itself. To provide excellent mediation services is what they wish to do. And I completely support and understand that. And where I've got my commercial mediator hat on, that's me. But I have this other part and I feel drawn to and committed to trying to make a difference in my society, trying to enhance the way that people operate. Frankly, ideal because I believe the survival of our species depends upon it. Unless we approach climate change and even the pandemic on an interest-based approach where we seek to help each other, we're going to really struggle in the next few years and in the next few generations for this species to survive substantially in the way that we presently live. You would advocate or you would even get more involved in like public policy mediation, as they call it in the US, divisive debates, polarized debates, bringing the parties together. That's what you believe in, if I understand you correctly, because you want to live by the principles of mediation. You want to see those principles applied in social, political arena. Doing that, I'm not taking a political view. However, I have to accept that in doing that, there are some political strands which would not be comfortable. I remember being at a conference and discussing this a couple of years ago. A mediator from Ukraine Mm -hmm. said that the very fact that you are a mediator 
associates you with a certain set of Western liberal values. And if you're an authoritarian regime, for example, mediation may not actually fit with your view of the world. And therefore, you may not wish to encourage or take part in mediation. You're an iconoclast in the conflict resolution world in terms of also technology. As far as I know, you're the only one who has his own podcast that he's producing. So please tell us what made you to do this and why this kind of format, like you speaking shortly every week or every two weeks. I can't believe that I'm the only mediator doing this. There must be others doing this. But So at the beginning of the pandemic, my workload simply went off a cliff and I really had nothing to do. And, and to be honest with you, I was fairly low. I've been thinking for a while, Edil, about doing something with podcasts, but I didn't really know what they were, how to do them. And one day I just sat down and I scripted the first podcast and it was particularly interesting to me, which if you go onto the podcast site, it's, it's a mnemonic I use, A-A-R-R-E-E, it's for dealing with different difficult people. And I scripted it and then I thought, now how do I do this? I think I had read somewhere or perhaps my son had told me that I could get a microphone for my iPhone. And I got the microphone and I found the software. I downloaded the software onto my iPhone. I got a stand. I put the, um, <laughs> the microphone on the stand. I simply recorded what I had written. And I think it took me two or three takes to do that. And it was really easy. And then we downloaded it on at that point. I think it was onto SoundCloud or something. And all of a sudden I had this publicly available short three or four minutes contribution as it were so I was quite pleased with, with that I have to say and I wasn't sure where it would go but but somebody wrote and said that was really helpful and this person actually was in the health sector uh, oh that's, that's interesting I, I must do another one so I did another one <laughs> and I got into a groove and in fact I started off by issuing two a week and somebody said to me that's there's no way you can issue two a week <laughs> but for a number of weeks I did issue a podcast a week eventually what I sought to do was to get as much of my so-called intellectual property out. We use all this material on the courses that, that we run, the flagship mediation, using mediation skills for leaders and professionals. Really got all the basics out there. And I wanted at this stage of my career to share as much as I could. We we're so protective of our intellectual property, but you know, I've learned all of this from so many other people, the Ken Cloaks, the William Uries and so forth of this world. It's not my original or what is original I have developed from what others have kindly enabled me to learn. And so far, I think there are 19 podcasts and I aim to get to 20. And then I might actually put it into some sort of a book because we have all the transcripts as well available on our website. We now can use these for our online training courses. And they're enormously helpful for people who are training with us. I've also been supporting a pro bono website for younger lawyers and the podcasts are available to these folk as well. So it just kind of happened. It feels like the right thing to do. And I'm just very grateful if some people find some of these useful. What kind of reactions do you get to your podcast? I've had a lot of very kind comments. And people saying that they take them out for walks and they listen to them. And some people have said it's made a real difference to them for a meeting they're going into or a situation in which they find themselves. So I suppose people would not let me know if they didn't like them, but I've had lots of encouraging remarks. Maybe occasionally I'll add some more. If you run it for a few weeks and people enjoy it, that's your contribution. You don't need to keep on doing it. And I think then it becomes self-perpetuating. They like all projects, they have a time span. And sometimes you need to let a project go and say it's, it's done its work. And there's no need, therefore, to keep on going. So I would encourage you similarly, just to, yeah. there's a rhythm for these things, there's a season for these things, a time and a place. The one thing about format, which I was very conscious of, was keeping them short. Mm-hmm. So most of mine are four or five minutes. I think 
And that was just the nature of the topic. Really short and sharp and gets the key messages across. You are loving this idea of restorative justice. I watched the interview with Joe Barry, whose mm. dad was killed by an RIA bomb. So are you also interested at some point in international negotiations, international peacekeeping? I haven't had a huge amount of experience to deal with restorative justice, but it's clearly really, really important. And Joe Berry is an extraordinary lady who has worked through the experience of having her father murdered to the extent of spending many, many occasions with the man who planted the bomb and seeking to understand him and talk with him about reconciliation and healing. So I'm profoundly interested in that. And I'm profoundly interested in the world and how we go about making and keeping peace. What I have sought to do is to expand what I do in my country. As I explained before, from being merely a mediator, I'm a great believer in trying to work at a local level as well, because the healing and reconciliation that's required is required locally as much as internationally. But I don't see any particular opportunity or way into that, apart from perhaps in the area of climate change, which really interests me and concerns me more than any other. We were going to have the COP talks here in Glasgow. In fact, it would have been just about now, had it not been for the pandemic. And so just yesterday, I was part of a small group which launched the Mediators Green Pledge. That was even before covid you were kind of involved in making mediators sign a pledge to be more environmentally aware of the effect of mediations, traveling, accommodation, production of all those documents, etc. How do you think the mediation community will react to it now uh, once COVID is over? Do you think all mediations will go back to face-to-face or is it going to be a lesson learned from all of this? I wrote the blog post on the topic of mediators and climate change and how we might somehow or other have some influence on dispute resolution and Mm -hmm. um, managing the climate change situation. I wrote the blog post probably in February of this year and it was published on the Kluver site and then mediate.com and it just seemed like a completely different world so it's really a result of that that a good friend of mine Anna Howard brought to my attention the arbitrator's green pledge which uh, an arbitrator called uh, Lucy Greenwood had, had established and so for a period of actually two or three more months a group of us then worked on the mediator's green pledge which I had initially drafted of course what we realized was everything had changed from the initial draft through the pandemic because as you anticipate and, and observe so much of mediation now has had to go online and so right. we've all become experts apparently in helping people to mediate using zoom normally or perhaps other online platforms that has meant that the pledge has changed a little bit nevertheless remains completely relevant because whatever happens with the pandemic climate change is not going away so mediators do need it seems to me respectfully to commit to do everything we can to reduce our carbon footprint and to be as environmentally friendly what we do so that means that in response to your question whether or not we'll go back to normal i don't think that we will at a recent conference it was said that it is likely that mediating online mediating using online platforms i don't like the term online mediation as such and you were using the platforms as a medium one of many media to to help clients or help parties it was thought that that would become the norm and that face to face would be the exception always an option because in circumstances they may be what people need and require i rather suspect that we don't yet know what the outcome will be that there may well be a, an instinct in some people to go back to what 
we did before, but I think it's unlikely that we can ever go back to what, how things were for a number of reasons, yeah. not least because with this virus is not going to go away. We're going to now forever be much more aware of the risk of viral infection. In any event, climate change continues to press us to consider our habits and our practices. So I hope, ADO, that, that people will be much more thoughtful that this pledge, in fact, will be a small part of our discerning approach as mediators to what we do and that many of us will now be very thoughtful about our practices and will encourage as far as possible whenever appropriate the use of platforms like we're using today which are remarkably effective. It is quite fascinating to me how effectively we can mediate using these platforms. I know it's not the same as physical presence but in some circumstances it is even better some people feel much more comfortable. They are able to be more open and more at ease. I found that the frankness and candor of conversation is quite extraordinary in some situations. And of course, it reduces the hassle, expense and stress of, of transport, travel, of the convening of people from lots of different places in, in one space. So I think that you know we need to keep an open mind about all of this. And I have no doubt that the word hybrid will be used uh, from time to time. But I think we've probably crossed a threshold here and that things will be different in the future. And I do hope that we'll make as much use of this as we can, not least for the environmental reasons that we've discussed. Very good. Is there anything you would like to add? Thank you very much for a very pleasant 50 minutes of conversation and, and for your excellent questions and for encouraging me to speak in the way that I have. I've enjoyed it and it's been good fun. What else, if anything, would you like me to say? To summarize the interview, John's point that when addressing an institutional or social problem that the approach should be to move away from forensics and blame apportionment to listening and diagnosing is very important. Equally important is the example he gave from the airline industry with the no-fault approach to investigation. In order to understand what went wrong, one should move away from making the stakeholders fearful and defensive. His point that we need more nuance and understanding and tolerance for complexity is important, especially to complex problems of modern society that defeat easy answers and ready-made prescriptions. John also pointed out to the difference between having a political and partisan approach to politics and how he chose to promote certain values by treating mediation as a means to an end, enhancing the way things are done. Finally, it seems that we owe the podcast of John to COVID and it seems that COVID has affected the progress of the Green Pledge that he was engaged in drafting for mediators. I hope you enjoyed this program. I will upload a picture of John in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. I'm also going to have a Turkish translation of the program in the blog of We Can Find A Way. I'm grateful to Efsane Şimal Yalçın for her translations. I will also be tweeting some of the important quotes of John. Please let me know what you think about the podcast at ialvaris at icloud.com. I'm grateful to Ipar Coach, who is the sponsor of We Can Find A Way, and Jan Aksoy, who helps me in marketing. Thank you, and see you in the next program. We Can Find A Way. Idil Elverish presented.